This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered to represent Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to offshore investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to the July 4th holiday weekend, but we have a great guest with us for the hour, Marco Popich, who is a partner and strategist at the Clock Tower Group, an alternative asset management firm that really publishes some interesting research, Marco. I, I got a copy of some of your outlooks, and I think we're going to drill into some really interesting places. Uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself how you became partner at, at Clock Tower, and just a little bit about your firm before we get into uh, some of your thoughts on, on the markets here. Cool. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Jeremy. Real pleasure to be on. So um, background on me. So I did not start my career in finance. I started in political risk. Um, and then I crossed over to finance actually during the euro area crisis when I realized that, wait a minute, uh, you can actually time the markets and this stuff really matters. The politics under uh, some of the developments that are going on around. So I, I switched from political risk to investment research. And I worked on the sell side, uh, publishing research at BCA Research. Uh, that's where I cut my teeth on macro. So this is a macro research firm based in Canada. Um, been there for seven years, learned a lot from my colleagues um, and published um, what I think is finance industries uh, first and really only dedicated political risk analysis uh, strategy. And then in 2017-18, my partner here at Clock Tower Group, Steve Drobny, um, approached me. He's, uh, he's the author of a book that I think a lot of people know, Inside the House of Money, uh, that kind of introduced macro hedge funds to the wider um, retail community and also institutional investor community. And uh, he said, hey, we should, uh, we should get together, uh, work together. And at first, honestly, uh, Jeremy, I thought he had the wrong person at BCA Research. I, I, you know, we had this dinner together and he's like, hey, you should come to California. You know, and I was like, ah, I think you want to talk to my colleagues. Like, I'm the politics guy. He's like, no, 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 no. That's what we need. That's where the world is going. Um, and so here I am uh, on the beach in Santa Monica writing research for LPs, investors and, and talking to really smart people like yourself. No, that's that's great. And it, it and I guess as you think about your outlook, I guess that's a a good way to transition into where the future is going. Um, I mean, maybe you, you did a piece last year looking at the forecast for the 2020s and, and sort of updated some of the thoughts with this sort of new race to zero concept. But I don't know if you where you want to start, but if you want to give a top down macro, how you're looking at the world, why politics, geopolitics are sort of one of the dominating stories. And I'm sure we'll explore a few sub themes in there. Yeah, like I, I love thinking big picture, right? I think that's my that's that's my special power. I think timing the markets, you definitely don't want to talk to Marco Popovich about that. I think there's a lot of smarter people to do that. Um, and I think there's three big things we can talk about, Jeremy. Um, you know, there's a sort of a very political story, which is populism. And a lot of folks are talking about populism and have been talking for several years. So there's nothing new about it. But I guess where I um, add a little bit to the debate is that not all advanced economies are as populist as others. And this variance in populism is going to matter for currencies, it's going to matter for bonds, it's going to matter for global markets. Uh, in my view, perhaps controversially now, perhaps not, the United States is probably the furthest along the populism curve, if you will, um, than any other major advanced economy. Uh, and I think that's really you know, surprising to a lot of investors because for 10 years we've been hearing stories about how the euro area is going to collapse. Uh, and it didn't. And you even have actual anti-establishment parties winning power, winning premierships in Europe. And then they pretty much come down and become establishment and become pretty centrist in their policies. Like think about Five Star Movement, uh, Lega in Italy didn't really do anything. Even Brothers of Italy, like for Terry Italia, if they win the next premiership, like who cares? You're not really interested. Marine Le Pen in France, oh no, you know, like, eh, yeah, it's not a big deal. So to me, that's the big story. Like, why is this happening in the U.S. right now? What does it mean? And because the U.S. is such an important country, 
not just in terms of like growth and so on, but also in terms of norms that it espouses. Like people follow America in terms of the ideas that it uh, that transcend, you know, um, the world, such as the Washington Consensus. What does it mean if the U.S. moves against that? So that would be my first big picture story. I think that's really relevant. The second, and by the way, the market is not responding to the story. I think right now with the bonds being as well bid as they are, with the dollar being as well bid as it is, I think there's a uh, there's probably the largest sort of alpha to be generated in that political story. The second story is global multipolarity. That's we can we can focus on that too. That's more geopolitical, you know, uh, but that's really about China, U.S. A lot of people talk about China, U.S. It gets me kind of agitated, you know, because a lot of people talking about this issue are Johnny come lately. They haven't really thought about it at all for the past decade. And now they kind of wandered into the conversation like a little child, you know, the famous uh, Big Lebowski quote. Um, and I think they don't put it in the proper context. The world is multipolar. It's not bipolar. It's not about what Beijing or Washington want. And that's going to limit and constrain that as a relevant macro moving force in the world. And then the final thing we can talk about is what you read, what you mentioned, which is the race to zero, which is like this big epochal uh, change in means of production that I think is really relevant in it. And over the next 10 years, is probably going to generate a lot of innovation. So that's kind of the menu of, I guess, the macro themes I got, I brought with myself today. That's awesome. So well, let's let's start with the first one, um, what you call the Buenos Aires consensus, which is, you know, it's sort of the U.S. is is moving to to this sort of different world. This is not the Washington capitalist consensus, the Buenos Aires consensus. Talk about how the pandemic changed attitudes and and really what you think is now sort of baseline expectation for how this changes our expectation for fiscal and and how it's going to you know evolve over the next decade. Yeah, so uh, there was this Washington consensus. You know, this is how the story goes. This is how one day you're going to be telling your kids uh, how like the world was <laughs> since 1980s. What is the Washington consensus? It's like a small, uh, it's like a, it's like a catch-all term for all these cool policies that gave us the great moderation. And they have to do with um, orthodox monetary policy, counter-cyclical fiscal policy, free trade, deregulation, privatization, blah, blah, blah. You know, like you and I, we're young enough to not even know what privatization means. You know, like when was the last time U.S. or France privatized anything? Like, but that was a big deal from 1980s onwards. Globalization and um, orthodoxy. And, you know, like, why did we have this Washington consensus? Well, because Reagan and Thatcher won and Francois Mitterrand lost. Like, that's fundamentally why. The Soviet Union lost as well, but even like socialist Keynesians in the 1970s and 80s definitely lost. The median voter, which is a really important part of my framework, it's like sort of the catch-all, be-all of political forecasting, the median voter changed their preferences over time, probably because the 1970s were a terrible time uh, to, to, you know, like be a consumer, uh, make money, be a citizen. And we went from, you know, sort of left-leaning Keynesian policies towards laissez-faire, right-leaning Reagan and Thatcher revolution. That revolution was most ardently and enthusiastically adopted in the U.S. and the U.K., which is why the two economies outperformed most of the world, especially the U.S., at least in terms of innovation. That's that's a fact. We could quick bull about productivity data. You know, you could argue France was as productive, blah, blah, blah. We can look at all sorts of other measures. But fundamentally speaking, we all know who won the last four years. And in no small part because of this adoption of the Washington consensus. Now, the IMF and the World Bank packaged this, this policy, this consensus, and then exported it through their programs to the rest of the world. You kind of knew what you had to do if you wanted an IMF program. You had to adopt all these policies one after another. Um, my point is just that it's the US that's revolting against the Washington consensus the most. It's the American median voter that's revolting against it. And what that means is that going forward, every single policies I just listed from orthodox monetary policy, uh, to, you know, counter-cyclical fiscal is kind of reversing itself, including free trade and so on. In the U.S., more so than in any other really G7 economy or even maybe OECD economy, although that's taking it perhaps too far because there's some emerging markets in there. I call this pivot the Buenos Aires consensus. Why? Because I want to punch people in the face and wake them up. You know, I don't actually mean America is going to become Argentina in any in any negative way. 
Um, I just mean that we are moving away from what was orthodox. And the market doesn't believe it. I mean, that's a fact, Jeremy. It does not believe it. With bond yields at 1.446 on, you know, what is it, uh, June 30th, like, definitely this view is not uh, consensus. Uh, you would think it is, but it isn't. Even after $5.5 trillion worth of fiscal spending, even after the policymakers that run our monetary uh, policy last year told us they're going to have this flexible inflation targeting, um, the bond market still does not believe it. And I think the reason for that is that the last cycle was just so orthodox. We had austerity for five years where government was a headwind to growth. We had household deleveraging for five years as well for much of that cycle. We had a lot of headwinds to growth. We had EM and European balance of payment crises that basically convinced the median investor that, you know, like secular stagnation is here to stay. And I think that they are not uh, respecting just how much politics have switched. Well, we're talking with Marco Papage, strategist partner at Clock Tower Group. It, it's it, when you think about that bond yield and, and all the pressures forcing bond yields low, what would be the rate where you say they're starting to factor it in? Is it, you know, if do you have a target on what it should be? I mean, the macro is is it's an interesting story we've been telling that story and higher inflation is coming you've got the politics angle here i mean where where would it be reflecting it you know so interesting jeremy so i don't know how to do math so bad question for marco Popovich. remember started career in political science which is basically means i'm qualified to flip burgers uh look i don't know you can you can make a bunch of scatter plots right with cpi on the y-axis you can throw nominal GDP growth in the y-axis. You can throw real growth, whatever you want. Whatever scatter plot you use. I don't know where the target is, but it's not 1.444. It's higher. <laughs> you know, it's like much higher. It's somewhere between like 3 and 12%. Just kidding. You know, <laughs> or am I? Look, the, the point is this, though. I think what you saw, for example, the FOMC meeting, mid-June, FOMC comes out says we're going to do two rate hikes in 2023 and everyone's like oh my god you know here it comes it's not that different it's the same as last time they're going to be precautionary they're going to uh get hawkish and you know you're sitting there you're saying to yourself okay fine that's fair objectively speaking that was a hawkish meeting objectively speaking you know they are preparing us for a taper that's all objectively true but let's put that meeting into the context that we have today the context in 2013 was, again, household deleveraging, balance sheet recession, the Richard Koo kind of argument of private sector having to deleverage. You know, uh, household debt, this percent of GDP had to go from above 100 percent down to where it is today. That took that took like 10 years of just deleveraging. Second, you had, of course, austerity, which was imposed contraction of government's um, contribution to GDP. And finally, you had all these balance of payment crises in EM and, uh, and Europe. That was the context in 2013 when the Fed said, you know what, it's time to kind of get serious. Today, we're nowhere near that. We're YOLOing. You know, like, I mean, the income growth in U.S., first time in history of mankind, you had a recession and incomes went up. You had massive amounts of precautionary savings still in the system, somewhere between 2 to $3 trillion of savings that can just be unleashed. You have wage growth, you have inflationary growth in the U.S., but also globally, you don't have that balance of payment issue that you had in 2013 when the Fed turned hawkish. So um, I think that if you think about it, the Fed is already massively behind the curve, massively behind the curve. Um, in other words, you can't assess the hawkishness or the orthodoxy of the central bank purely by what it says. You have to assess it relative to where the economy is in the cycle. Kind of like parenting. You know, a parent that scolds their child over spilled milk is clearly a terror, right? That's unnecessary. But a parent that waits to scold their child um, after they've, like, commandeered the milk truck, beaten the delivery person with a baseball bat, and then used the milk in the truck to, like, drown the stray kittens, that parent is behind a curve. And I think the same situation is here right now. We have a cycle that's been completely satellite by fiscal profligacy and the Fed got a little hawkish. Yeah, but it's not like 2013 at all. And yet the market's reacting as if it already knows where it's going. Let me put it this way, just really briefly, Jeremy, like what I would say is this. 
Maybe the cycle is the exact same as it was last time. Maybe that is the case. But if that's true, then bond yields where they are right now are priced for perfection. Everything has to go precisely the same as it did last time around. And to me, being like long bonds just doesn't make sense. Like, you know, like there's, there's, there's no juice to extract from that trade anymore. But wouldn't you think that it's not the same as last cycle? I mean, $5.5 trillion worth of fiscal spending relative to 800, no balance of payment crisis in EM in Europe, you know, relative to euro area crisis and emerging markets blowing up. It just doesn't seem right. Huge money supply growth is in it's in people's pockets, right? It is not it's not just sitting at excess reserves on the bank balance sheets. This is cash in people's pockets, which is what we talk about coming out of the system. And and it's sort of interesting how it all ties to that view. Let's let's go to your China view on the multipolarity and and so the, you're right. This this tension with China um, is is interesting. This sort of free trade order moving away. Maybe talk through how you think the trade issues Trump had, which were not a Republican issue. I mean, it's more actually like a a Bernie Sanders type issue. This is your populism type question. I mean, I how how do you see this navigating the relationship with China over the next decade? You know, I think no matter who had won the presidency twenty sixteen, we would have had the situation we have today. Uh, maybe I mean, you know, that's a counterfactual. Maybe maybe that's too hyperbolic of a statement, but let me put it this way. You know, I think globalization was basically incompatible with the kind of a global system we have. The United States ceased to be a global hegemon at some point over the course of the last 20 years. I don't know when, but it's relative power, relative, not absolute, relative to the rest of the world. Its power began to weaken over the course of the last 20 years. Why? Not because of anything stupid America did, but because, you know, China basically grew at an unprecedented rate. Russia stabilized itself after the horror of the 1990s. And, you know, Europeans figured some things out. India rose. So there were more poles in the global context. And this really matters from a political science theory, because the distribution of power between states, the ordering of global power really matters for a slew of things. Um, if you have a unipolar system where one country is just extremely powerful, it can set globalization in place. It can create rules and norms of the game that everyone else you know, follows. Uh, the U.S. did that, I would argue, since 1985. We had some form of a unipolar system probably since around that time. And that was really, really good because once you adopt those rules and norms, you can kind of like just coast on them. If you don't, if you fight against it, Tomahawks are going to land on your capital, as many countries found out over that period of time. The bipolar system is tricky. Bipolar system where two countries just kind of split the planet in half is actually the least conducive to globalization and to our kind of trading rules of the game. Why? Because those two countries create their spheres of influence and they beat up their own allies, forcing them to comply. The world that we live in today is highly complicated. And for a lot of investors, I think, Jeremy, who haven't had, you know, the time um, to kind of spend thinking about this, it's very difficult to process a multipolar world because we have no reference to it in our lives. Nobody. And, you know, like most books that most of us read are not about like late 19th century Europe or early 20th century. They're about the Cold War or about the post 1980s. And so the only reference point that most of us have is this neat mathematically simple game theory world of a bipolar world where two superpowers just basically carve up the world, beat up everyone else and tell them to play nice. Um, and then that's a world where U.S. and China basically decouple neatly and we have very little economic interaction across some sort of a, you know, silicon curtain, digital divide, a decoupled economy. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. You know, and I say unfortunately because uh, that would be simple from an analytical perspective to forecast into the future. The world we live in is very messy. And it's a world where I think you will see both U.S. and China struggle to motivate their perceived allies. I mean, China actually doesn't have any. So it's really just mainly the U.S. Um, to force their allies to, to work together against this perceived threat. For Europeans, China is just not that big of a threat. Relative to Soviet Union, it's laughable. You know, Soviet Union literally had, 
you know, T-54 is ready to burst through the Fulda gap and like take Frankfurt in 15 minutes. So for Europeans, the threat is not really that proximate. They want to do business with China. I think U.S. policymakers are going to struggle to neatly decouple the rest of the world from China. And so it means we're in a messy environment. There's a lot of different players and everyone's focused on the U.S.-China relationship. But quite frankly, over the next 12, 18 months, there could be other risks that uh, that appear that we didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about. We're talking with, okay, we're talking with Marco Papich, uh, partner strategist at, at Clock Tower. So in, in terms of that multipolar world, um, and certainly you had things like there's a lot of tension in Asia. There's there's questions of China going after Taiwan. There was this the issues with Japan. You, have you written a little bit on Japan as well? I, how do you see the overall this this multipolar working? I mean, do you, do you see the trade issues we have going the other way? Is Japan an example we can learn from on on how to navigate with China? That's a great great question, Jeremy. I mean, precisely, Japan has probably more to fear from China than most other you know uh, countries in the world. It's right there. They have territorial disputes as the Senkaku Diaoyu Island dispute in particular uh, teaches us. So since 2011, 2012, even before Xi Jinping became president of China, China and Japan have had territorial disputes. And if you look at trade and investment flows between Japan and China, so from Japan to China, both exports and FDI flows, they have never recovered to pre-2011 levels. So geopolitical tensions between Japan and China, which started far before geopolitical tensions uh, of China and the U.S., have definitely had an impact on trade investment. But those trade and investment flows have recovered, not to pre-2011 levels, but to pre-2008 levels. So Japan continues to invest in China and continues to export to China. Um, And so I do think that a multipolar world is one where it's very dangerous very dangerous to commit yourself fully to some sort of a blanket, uh, you know, trade embargo. Why? Because your own allies are going to cheat against you. That's kind of the fundamental um, lesson from history and theory that we get. Example of this is pre nineteenth uh, uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, before World War One. Even though France, UK, and Russia were all allied militarily against Germany, they all also traded. With Germany right up until the start of World War I. Pre-World War II, Japan and the U.S. were clearly enemies and clearly knew there was a war coming, but for 10 years you had this steady flow of uh, trade and investment between the two. And that's not because policymakers running these countries are stupid or lazy or, you know, sleeping at the wheel. No, they're planning for a war, but they cannot stop trading with their own enemy because their own allies will pick up the slack if they do. And the most recent example of this is actually Australia. So China imposed an embargo on the various Australian products like wine, barley, and so on, because Australia asked for an investigation into the COVID-19. You might remember this happened like 12 months ago or so. And China imposed this embargo on Australian exports to China. And guess who picked up the slack? The U.S. did. The U.S. was like, oh, cool story, Australia. Thanks for being our tip of the spear. Hey, China, you want some Californian wine, by the way? You know, and so my point is like, here's a country that's probably more loyal to the United States when it comes to China than any other country in the world. It goes out, runs over its skis, says to China, you know what, we're not going to stand for your assertiveness. We're going to stand for the West and punch you in the nose. And its own ally, America, is like, cool, thanks for that. Now let's, let's grab some of your market share. That's a multipolar world. And that would have never happened during the Cold War. During the Cold War, it was really clear that there were these two delineated camps. So what does this mean for investors? It means for investors that you're going to have some really weird stuff going on. For example, um, there is going to be geopolitically influenced markets. Um, uh, I talk a lot about the semiconductor CapEx place. So these are CapEx companies in the semiconductor uh, play, uh, uh, space. They're going to continue profiting massively over geopolitical tensions because they're all now gorging themselves on this fake Chinese demand for semiconductor fabs that was created by American embargo on semis. So American-owned semiconductor capex companies are going to make money off of this, uh, off of this geopolitical crisis by helping China set up 
their own factories. While we pretend that we're enemies of China by embargoing actual semiconductor exports. So think about that. Because the US, someone in the Pentagon has decided that selling a semiconductor to China is bad, CapEx companies are going to help China set up their own factories. And so, you know, that's the multipolar world we live in. Well, we're talking with Marco Papich, partner strategist at Clock Tower Group. We have him for the hour. I'm going to drill into his worldviews on the race to zero in the second half. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. This is Behind the Markets. Let's go into a little bit of some of the investing implications. You know, you, you wrote a piece, The Race to Zero. Let's describe what is the race to zero, uh, and then we can get to your conclusions and what it means, where you're focused for this, uh, this next decade ahead. But what is the race to zero? So, you know, you sit there and you think about all these big trends that are going on around the world right now. Uh, populism is really motivated by the need to generate nominal GDP growth after 10 years of secular stagnation. Then you have this multipolar messy world where China, U.S. and other countries are racing to become more sovereign in a sense, in terms of energy imports, in terms of domestic manufacturing capacity and so on. You have um, all these big trends happening at the same time. You have cheap money everywhere, low interest rates, so you can run unprofitable companies for the next 10 years, right, and get financing for it. Uh, you can take a, a bet on new technologies. And we have technological innovation, especially in the alternative energy space, uh, batteries and so on. This is a brew in which I think we are going to, um, we're going to have an epochal shift in means of production. So let me just break that down a little bit. Means of production, very Marxist term. You know, means of production just means technology. It's all of the material tools we as humans have to produce economically uh, relevant goods. So for the past 200 years, our means of production have been really tooled towards scaling everything. You know, scaling steel production, railroad production, military production, and, and producing products for the median consumer. So whether that's you know a median soldier, a median student, a median consumer, a median executive, whatever the case is, it's all been about scale, not about customization. In fact, the whole point of the Industrial Revolution is that we achieved scale and destroyed a lot of customization that you had like these merchants and guilds and so on, craftsmen do pre, pre-industrial revolution. I think that we're not going away from that because of technological innovation um, and this race to efficiency, race to zero. So it's no longer a race to scale. It's not about scaling. It's about being more efficient and not producing necessarily for the median, but producing for the tails of the distribution. That's where um, I think we've come with the technological progress we've, we've had. So this isn't just about green energy. It's not just about batteries or EVs. If you think about a holistic view of all the technologies that are uh, coming up down the pipeline from AI, from machine learning, from bioengineering um, and alternative energy and EV, it's really all about race to efficiency and um, race to tails of the distribution in terms of uh, consumption. So over the next decade, I think that we're going to see a massive increase in these technologies. And the reason for this is that it, it, it's, it's multivariate. Not only are these technologies out there, not only is there cheap financing, but also policymakers are just struggling to generate growth. So they're going to become far more willing to spend fiscal dollars on big projects. And so you see that obviously with the Green Deal in the US, you see that with uh, the European fiscal stimulus, you see that in China, you see that in Japan. There is this narrative out there that we have to spend a lot of money to save the planet from global warming. But underpinning that, you know, you can scoff at that and say, well, I don't believe in climate change or global warming is not a big deal or whatever the case is. But underpinning that is very much a Machiavellian realist need to just generate growth through something. So that motivates a massive amount of fiscal stimulus that I think will create much faster adoption curves for a lot of these technologies. So that's that's the one global macro trend underpinning this. The other one is competition between China and the US in particular. Uh, I think I, I've read a lot of research that says China is not serious about global warming. A lot of their electricity is produced from coal and so on and so on. 
that may all be true, but they are serious about EV revolution, about batteries. Why? Two reasons. One, they want to dominate another economic sphere. God bless them. That's what they've done with solar power. That's what they've done with you know, uh, cell phone assembly. They want to dominate batteries and EVs. Fine. But the other reason is that they don't want to keep importing an oil barrel out of the Straits of Hormuz where the U.S. can interject and interdict that oil barrel and, and make it very difficult for them to pursue their national interests. So as China gets serious about some of these technologies, U.S. will as well. So when people tell me, well, Marco, a lot of these technologies you're really excited about, you know, you get a Republican president in 2024 and it's over. I'm like, no, forget about that. You know, Attila the Hun, you know, Genghis Khan could win the 2024 election and America will still spend hundreds of billions of dollars in green tech. hundred percent. It's a guarantee to you right now. You know, the person may campaign against climate change, but when they come to power, someone from the Pentagon is going to say, like, listen, this is a national security issue. We cannot let China dominate these technologies. So this isn't really just about climate change. That's what I'm, I'm trying to say. When people talk about alternative energy or green tech or green stocks uh, or investing in private space, um, they, they, they talk about it in terms of bubbles. They talk about it in terms of this and that. And there's a lot of truth in that. And we can go over that. But to me, it's very important to understand that what's happening is not just about climate change. It's not just because Al Gore or Greta Thornburg think this, this is important. What's happening is an epochal shift in means of production, and it's underpinned by politics, populism, nominal GDP growth needs. It's motivated by geopolitics, China-U.S. competition, and it's motivated by genuine technological innovation that is now going to find a market and fiscal support. That's a, it's a really interesting worldview, um, and you know I think you you sort of summarize it with this statement on it's going to be a decade of of atoms of like energy and industrials over bits like the IT and telecom. Uh, so I, I kind of want to get some comments. I want to I want to drill into both sides of this, the atoms and the bits. You know because you you know um, before we get to well. Let's let's go on the bits for a second. I mean, because you talk about how those technologies are coming together from AI and all these things. Yet, like communications technologies haven't done anything. So give us like in, in in a few decades. Maybe expand on your view on where we are in the tech trend and 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 some of those communications technologies. Why why are you more excited on the other on the other side? I mean, look. I think software has you know you can look at the productivity gains by sector in the US from adoption of software. And we're at a point where maybe only financial industry, financial sector has yet not yet gotten those productivity gains, especially in the US, we still use paper checks and stuff like that. You know, people around the world laugh at us. Um, I remember when uh, the bank that I bank with sent me the card with the chip, they were so proud of that. And I'm like, it's 2020 guys, you know, like well, what's going on here? So I think that when you think about software in terms of productivity gains, by sector, we are done. Those gains have been had. Mm. And other than financial sector, I think that software has nothing left to contribute. Think about your own uh, life, you know? Like the Microsoft Excel that you use today, how different is it from 1994? Eh, it's okay. Maybe for you, Jeremy, because you actually know math and you actually use it sophisticated ways, maybe it's different than me. Better in 03. I remember, you know, going back when I was first getting out of school, um, 03 was better? It, well, no, I mean, it's not that different. I, to your point, it's like, it's <laughs> yeah. like, all right, so we could collaborate and share, but you're right, it's not that different. So to me, look, I think when a lot of institutional investors hear this view, they say, Marco, there's no way I'm going to invest in atoms. I want to invest in bits because profit margins are higher. Software is beautiful. You know, it's high profit margins, scalable, blah, blah, blah. That's true. But the atom world, the world of atoms has huge tent. I mean, if you're going to sit there and you're going to spend the rest of your life automating TPS reports, well, God bless you. You know, that might be an exciting life. But what we're talking about here is scaling to a global TAM. And that's what's really exciting about the world of atoms, where we haven't really had that much innovation over the last 20, 30 years. And the technologies that are coming down the pipeline are really exciting, whether it's ag tech, whether it's alternative energy, whether it's just autos, airplanes, you know, shipping, um, there is uh, a lot coming down the pipeline that I think people haven't really seen. Now, there's a problem though, Jeremy, and here's the problem. The problem is that the private market ecosystem for investing in software companies is perfect. 
you know, you go from venture, from seed stage to series like whatever, King. It is perfect. There is a there is an investor for every single step in that process for enterprise software companies. And so that ecosystem in terms of private markets is highly sophisticated. It doesn't really exist in this space for atoms because we just don't, we have never built it. Um, private markets are not efficient when it comes to non-software private companies. And so that's why you're seeing a couple of things happen. One, you see this plethora of SPACs, about a third of all SPACs is basically green companies. They probably shouldn't be going private. They are probably going to be a bad investment. Okay, like I'm just hyperbolically saying that, but you know, I haven't like done bottom-up research, so I'm, I'm sorry if I've insulted anyone, but the point that I'm saying is that they are becoming private too soon because they don't have the luxury of software companies where they can you know, have touch points every step of the way. And the second thing that's happening is that a lot of people have figured out my story. They're like, Marco, you're right. I want to go buy some stocks. The problem is that there's not that many stocks. So the demand for this race to zero narrative, for this new epochal shift in means of production, the demand is out there. People want to own, but in the public markets, there is not enough supply of companies for the demand. And that's creating this bid up in prices. But that doesn't mean that the innovation is not going to come out of here. Just because there's a bubble in this, in this part of the innovation curve, which is in the public markets, just because there may be a bubble there does not mean that what's going to come down the pipeline is not going to be extraordinary. And I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to look back on this period as a period when a lot of innovation happened. And, you know, like, like I say in that piece that you referenced, I think in 2030, 2040s, we're talking about green stack. We're not talking about NASDAQ anymore. We're talking about a whole sector of, of, of stocks of publicly traded companies that are built on this new industrial revolution. I love the green deck. That's a, that's a great, that's a great line. And, and you talk about, so it's, it's, if there is a bubble in pricing, okay, so we got some excitement, but you're sort of making the analogy, you're basically a 94 and not 99. So you're still early. The NASDAQ peaked, you know, in 2000, had the big drop now back to all time highs going again. So, I mean, you think this is a, this is, this, you're even saying this is beyond the 2020s, 2030. This is a multi, this could be a multi-decade run that we've got going on here. And listen, Jeremy, if, if I have complete discretion over how I deploy capital, I would definitely uh, prefer to deploy it in the private sector rather than the public markets when it comes to the, these technologies. But I do think that there's still value to be extracted in the public markets as well. Um, and so like that would be my only kind of preference. I think the gems in this space, in the green tech sustainability tech space, the gems are probably still private. And Is that because it's earlier stage and that you're going to get access to the sort of higher growth, like the, the trend that companies are staying private longer, they're ramping longer, and it's like a growth angle, or is there is there something other unique about this that the private markets are more interested in the public markets too? No, I think I think that's it. I think that's that's the primary angle for me. I think the primary angle is that um, there is definitely um, more value to extract from companies staying private longer. And I think there's another issue as well, which is that you know there aren't as many network effects with atoms as there are with bits. So you don't have to get, you know, you don't have to panic and just buy the first thing that shows up on the public markets in terms of sustainability or green tech. The network effects are, I think, uh, still there, but they're less critical to your investment thesis. You don't have to buy the first Uber and then every other, you know, mobile mobility company just dies after them because they've reached some critical mass. Uh, it's not as it's not as important as it is uh, in the space of software and bids. Now, tied into this, um, it, it, certainly there's like a commodity angle and sort of the commodities that are needed to fund all these things. And, and, and so it also goes back to our first segment of the conversation. We talked about bonds being so low, inflation might be coming back. Commodities tend to do, you know, there's, there's some, some overlap with commodity demand, inflation. Are we in a commodity super cycle? Is this, is this a new trend? Is it early coming off, you know, a decade of, of pretty bad returns for commodities? Yeah, yes, we we definitely are. Now, um, you know, my favorite trade over the past month has been to be long oil short copper. So it doesn't mean that I'm not going to be, you know, occasionally short some of the commodities that have kind of gone up really, really fast. 
I think copper, a lot of people are using it to play this thesis themselves. I think it's gotten over its skis a little bit. Um, it's probably done in two years. Uh, sorry, in one year, what I thought it would do in two years. Um, and uh, I do think that we shouldn't completely be ignorant of China's demand for copper. You know, so when the total social financing in China goes down and copper continues to rally, you probably should pause a little bit. But yes, we are in a super cycle. So if you don't care about you know, three month moves and you're just investing on a decade long horizon, I think it's a no brainer. Um, and I think it's a no brainer for commodities to go higher. And there's really three reasons for this. One, lack of CapEx over the past decade. Okay, so uh, capital investing in commodities is highly pro-cyclical. We haven't had any serious capital investment in either, you know, metals or energy really for since 2014, if not 2011. That's the first issue. The second issue is that despite higher prices over the last 12 months, most largely large integrated mining companies are still not deploying CapEx. Like this is fascinating. Even the higher prices over the last 12 months have not motivated anyone to start more mines. Being into them that their net their prices are going to just go back down. I think so. Well, I mean, think about it. if you were a, swash, a swashbuckling CEO who was like building mines like crazy, you're dead. You've been buried, you know, like you've been shot in the back and you're not like anywhere near the people who run these firms, the management teams that run the highly integrated mining companies are very CapEx averse. And they're just sitting there saying like, nah, you know, and, and by the way, like think about all the questions you get asked by macro investors and institutional investors for the past 10 years. When I would walk into an office, you know, the CIOs of these large pools of capital would always ask you, where's the next China? And the number one question anyone who had even an inkling on being bullish in commodities would ask was India. India's coming, right? India's going to industrialize. And, and that's because, again, frameworks are so important to investors. In the last decade, the last super cycle was about China industrializing. So we need another country to industrialize, right? Wrong. We don't. If we decide to rewire the entire planet because we need to generate higher nominal GDP growth so people don't revolt, and yes, also to save planet from climate change, if we decide to do that as a human society, that's going to require a lot of commodities. You do not need a China to industrialize again. And I think a lot of investors are hesitant to really believe the super cycle because, you know, how, 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 how reasonable is this green tech stuff? And I'm telling you, it's super reasonable. It's going to motivate. And the CEOs of these uh, mining companies are not plowing money into capital investment. Of course, the third reason, as we talked about, is the green stuff. I think that's big. Um, the amount of lithium, cobalt, nickel, silver, copper we're going to need, I mean, it's astronomical. It's, it's extremely high. Um, and so that is going to pull prices higher, eventually forcing even the CapEx-averse CEOs to say, okay, fine, let, let's lay down some mine. Then you could put another one, which is the rise of this kind of populism around the world. Uh, I don't want to bet on that too much, but you see some of the tax proposals in Chile and Peru. Um, you know, on copper sort of mining, you know, you have like some lithium producers like my homeland of Serbia, where I was born. I know the government basically like banned exports of lithium. They don't even produce any there. They could if someone built mines there, but they say, no, 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 we want to refine it here. You know, like you're starting to see that extracting these minerals is going to be costly because we've moved away from the Washington consensus, because a lot of the countries are now thinking about uh, more Keynesian, more kind of left-leaning policies rather than what we had in the 80s and 90s. And that, I think, could also be a mild uh, tailwind to commodity prices as well. And finally, you know, geopolitical competition. You're going to have these weird locations on the planet that are suddenly going to be extremely relevant, like Congo with the cobalt production. 75% of mining production in cobalt is kind of controlled by China, more or less. You know, I can see that causing geopolitical conflicts of the future, low level proxy conflicts between different powers that try to basically make it more difficult to make this EV transition. Um, again, these are all mild tailwinds to prices, but I think they're, they're something investors should start thinking about. Very interesting. We're talking with Marco Papich of Partner Strategist at Clock Tower Group. Uh, in terms of this green shift, the commodity super cycle, anything else on the race to zero that we haven't covered in 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 the that implications of, of all the investment lessons of, of where you're focused there? I think uh, what's the implication for inflation is a really good one. So I have a chart in there, that famous chart, I think, uh, 
think from a Stanford professor of like price of lumens, you know how the price of lumens basically went really high to zero over the course of 19th and 20th century. Why? Well, because if you wanted to have the luxury of reading at night, in like the 19th century, someone had to spear a freaking whale you know, so that you can get to read at night. Uh, so yeah, that was expensive. You know, We had this incredible infrastructure that by the way still exists on many South Atlantic islands. There's still this incredible rusting infrastructure of like whaling stations uh, on islands that have been like depopulated for hundreds of years, whereas there were like hundreds of people working on these islands, stripping whales down to blubber and, you know, shipping it so you can turn on a lamp. Uh, so when you look at that chart, you're like, OK, Marco, if there's this green tech revolution and all this cool stuff. And one day we have like, I don't know, fusion, you know, like this is extremely deflationary, just like the price of lumens. And the answer is absolutely. Yes, this is going to be more deflationary than you being able to use Uber, for God's sakes. OK, like software is a joke compared to what we're really talking about here. This is transformative and it will change the human experience. However, from now until there, there's going to be an inflationary part because we're going to have to basically strip down everything we have. Like you're going to have to rewire your entire house. You're going to have to, there's going to be massive amounts of sunk assets, like your, your petrol burning car that will have to be basically stripped down and rebuilt. And that's a lot of broken windows in a Keynesian sense. And so the short-term implications of this race to zero would actually be inflationary, even though clearly this will just add to the deflationary uh, forces over the longer period of time. As somebody who has a house from 1929, I'm, 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 and a lot of stone, I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to strip down this house to, to redo that. Well, actually, actually, if you go up in the attic, I'm sure you've experienced this. I've, I've had this happen to me in several homes I own, one in Austin, Texas, one in Montreal. And I remember in Austin, Texas, I mean, I was a grad student. The house was like from 1949 and it cost like $2, right? So you can imagine this house. And the electrician goes up into the attic and he says like, yeah, you're like, your bell, you know, your like uh, doorbell was sparking in all this foam. Like it, it's a shocker you haven't, your, your tiny little home hasn't burned down. And I was like, man, who put that like doorbell up there? You know, who, who put that? And it's like, well, it's the old 1949 doorbell that was just sparking for the past like 30 years uh, in, in foam. And then in Montreal, I remember uh, there were all these cables running around. That house was 120 years old. And the cables were like old wiring cables that nobody ever took out of the house. They just stay there. And then they, over the course of a hundred years, the house was actually rewired a couple of times. And so old homes like that, like what you're talking about, you can actually see the history of our energy transformation in your own home. And so this, this isn't the first time we've done it. Um, and so like the scale of it is really when you step back and you read some of these incredible research reports like put out by IEA and you look at the trillions of dollars of CapEx that's going to be required for us to get this revolution, you kind of pause and say to yourself, no way is this going to happen. But like we've done it before. You know, your home probably, well, I don't know if it was built to support electricity in the 1920s. I know mine in, in Canada didn't like have toilets in the house. So you have this weird like floor plan where like I call it, I had this one bathroom, I call it the Lufthansa bathroom because it was like, it was like an airline bathroom, you know, under the stairs, somebody was like, hey, you know what we should do? We should put a toilet, you know, like let's cram it in here. And so like these energy transfer, uh, transformations do happen. Um, we all do sink in a lot of money when they do happen. And I think in the short term, I think it will be inflationary. Let's tell our listeners a little bit more about a uh, clock tower. So you mentioned at the start, we talked, we mentioned the start that it's sort of an alternative asset manager. Any things you want to highlight? I mean, obviously, fascinating conversation of this decade, multi-decade ahead. Look out! What when when I, I, I presume some of this ties to things you're thinking about at, at clock tower and and solutions you're providing. What what are the types of solutions you guys provide to the investing community? Yeah. So um, so clock tower, we we start with macro. Uh, we're an alternative investment management firm, but we're really born out of macro. And that's because my partner, Steve Drovny, um, he's worked with hedge funds for a very long time. He wrote the book Inside the House of Money, which uh, you might know. And so um, we really take a very macro approach to alternative uh, assets, which is unusual. 
Uh, it's unusual to basically build illiquid private investment solutions that start with a macro big picture. Most macro investors are in public markets. Um, and most of them, quite frankly, they, they might claim that they're long-term thinkers, but they're really thinking about the next three months, at least in my experience, three weeks even, especially in the hedge fund community. So we start off with a macro view of the world, and then we build long-term illiquid alternative assets based on that world of the view, uh, worldview. So we do four things at Clock Tower. We seed macro discretionary hedge funds. So that's the one thing that's a very institutional investor pro uh, product. We do the same in China, which is a very sort of a, it's a, it's a new business line. Um, we also have a financial technology venture fund. Uh, we believe that that's the part of the software uh, revolution that still has productivity gains to be had. As I said earlier, that's the one sector in the U.S. that hasn't really adopted software as much as it probably should have. So we have a fintech venture fund, and we also have, we're starting a climate uh, and green tech fund as well. Makes sense based on what we just talked about. I mean, it I, does. I think it, that uh, it kind of does. And I'm the I'm like my role uh, in this firm is definitely not to make uh, the private investment decisions. I just want to make that very clear. I learned everything there is about private investing from Shark Tank and like HBO Silicon Valley. So I'm I'm really here. They keep me in this glass jar in the office, and, and I think the big macro uh, picture things. And then uh, my partners they 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 think these big pictures with me. Uh, and then we think of ways to articulate those macro themes in illiquid private vehicles. This has been a fun conversation and tour around the world. I mean, we covered a lot in, in approximately 50 minutes. So Marco Popich, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.